Welcome everybody. It's good to see you. I've been working the night shift Sunday night, so I miss you guys. Thanks for coming out. I'm really excited to introduce our special guests today, Justin and Tricia Davis from Nashville, Tennessee. Um, they're bloggers, speakers, and founders of Refinus Ministries. They're going to share a story of pain, loss, and redemption with you guys today. It's unbelievable. Um, Refinus is igniting a movement to build healthy marriages and families. They also co-authored their very first book, Beyond Ordinary, When a Good Marriage Just Isn't Good Enough. Guys, I had the privilege to spend a little time with them last night. Wonderful, wonderful people. Um, they feel like family here already. Let's give a Parkview warm welcome to Justin and Tricia to come and share with us this morning. Well, thanks. We are Justin and Trisha Davis from Nashville, Tennessee, so they make you wear boots when you live in Nashville. <laughs> um, we've been married for almost 18 years. Got married when we were 12. It's true. Uh, we have three boys, ages 17, 14, and 10. So just pray for us. That's just where we're Our at. Our 14-year-old right now is on a plane going back to Nashville and is being picked up at the airport by our 17-year-old. So like, pray like right now. <laughs> But I'm especially excited to be here because I uh, was born and raised in Joliet, Illinois. So I feel like I'm, I'm with my people. Uh, my family's here with us this uh, service, so I'm so excited. And um, I'm, I'm also excited to be with my people because you guys say, you guys, not y'all. And you call pop, pop, because that's what it's called, and not soda. So... <laughs> I love you already. Hey, and I'm not from here, but I have eaten at Portillo's three out of the last five days. And so... We are like two pounds away from having to buy new clothes. It's bad. Yeah. It's bad. And uh, the Blackhawks won yesterday, and the Heat lost. So, it was a good day yesterday for me as a sports fan. The Heat lost, Blackhawks won. I was good. Yeah. So, we feel a special connection to your church, not just because uh, Tricia is from here, but um, Pastor Tim, we love him, and his daughter Rachel. I'm on staff at a church in Nashville, and his daughter Rachel goes to our church, so we do feel like family, feel like we're with our extended family today, and we're just honored to be a part of this crazy thing called Love Series. Yes. And what we're excited about to share with you this morning is just to dream beyond ordinary, to long for the extraordinary again, and regardless if you're eight or you're 80, we're all dreamers. In fact, I'm, I'm interested, do we have any high school or college-age students with us this morning? Like, oh my gosh, what is she asking of us? <laughs> um, if you want to be around dreamers, go rub elbows with some students. What I love about college-age ministry and, and about college or high school students is that they don't dream small dreams. They are living it and dreaming for the big dream. And that was Justin and I. We met um, at Lincoln Christian University. If you've heard of it, you should get a sticker or something because it's in the <laughs> middle of nowhere in Illinois. And it was there that we fell in love with each other and this idea that God would use us to change the world through the local church. And so we got married in 1995. Anybody get married in the 90s? Some of you. So sorry. <laughs> if you got married in the 90s, it meant big bedazzled dresses, right? And you guys know, remember that desert lizard, like when it gets mad, it's like, that, that was my veil. That's what my veil looked like. So anybody taking a picture with me, they're like eyes getting poked out. But that was the vision we had in the 90s. I'm glad it's not coming back. But the thing that we were most excited about is this epic, extraordinary vision we had for our honeymoon. 
We both grew up in families that going on vacation was kind of a once-in-a-lifetime event, and so the fact that we were going away on a honeymoon was like the win. And so we get married, and we are gifted um, to borrow Justin's parents' brand-new car ever to them, Astro minivan. Anybody own those? <laughs> Sexy, it, yeah. right? You Cruising know? in style on the honeymoon. You turn the wheel and it just kind of goes. But Lord knew I needed that big old van for my big old dress. And so we uh, hit the interstate. And if you've lived here long enough, you know that Interstate 80 is just a beast of its own. You just never know what you're going to get. And so what should have just taken, you know, three hours to the hotel that we are headed you know, maybe took a little bit longer. So hour two, people are honking and we're excited. We're like, yeah, we're just newly married. And then like hour four or five, I was like, listen, if one more car beeps at us, I'm getting out of this van and they're going down, right? <laughs> so what should have just taken short hours took us like six or eight. It gets longer and longer the older we get. But we finally get there. So the whole like, you know, carry me over the threshold was like, you need to get out of my way because I'm getting out of this dress to go to sleep. And sleep was the operative word there. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, time out. Sleep was not in my contract, right? I didn't say sleep in my vows. I said, it's, you know, four in the morning, but I can light a candle. We can throw on some Luther Vandross. We stroke, we stoke this whole thing, you know? It's, it is early. It is our honeymoon. Let's, but yeah. when he came to the bathroom where I was changing, he could hear sniffles that turned into sobs. And he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, you need to go to Walmart. And he's like, Walmart? You know, what? Apparently, as we arrived at the hotel... Something else arrived for Trish. So here I am, 21 years old, in my tux at 4 in the morning at Walmart, buying feminine products. Now, I have a sister, never bought those for her. I'm standing at the cash register, and the lady's looking at me with as much pity as she possibly can, and I'm thinking, this is the worst honeymoon of all time. It's been 18 years, people. You're still but fired up about that. God's word says that his mercies are new every morning, right? So we got up, and our destination was Holden Beach, North Carolina. So hours later, we finally get there. And a little unknown fact about me is that I'm Hispanic. My maiden name's Lopez, right? Yeah? No? <laughs> My sister's here. She'll prove that I am Mexican. Um, although I'm fair-skinned, I don't ever remember, like, burning, burning. But you guys, the sun in the south is like it's different and so we spent three hours on the beach excited to be there and when we got done I was blistered from head to toe and our epic vision of our honeymoon was kind of epic just in the wrong way so four days later I overhear my husband on the phone with his dad and the conversation kind of went like I'm like dad it's been four days there's been no action <laughs> the only thing that's touching her body is aloe vera and my dad's like, you know, we're not Catholic, but I think you can annul that. Just call time out, our bad, it's, you know, we'll just kind of go our separate ways. Yeah. So for the record, I did try to make it up to him, and day five, we had all this money. We decided, let's rent a jet ski. Jet ski, young husband, pent-up energy, probably not the brightest thing. So we get on this jet ski, and before I can even say anything to him, I'm holding on for dear life, my hair is shooting straight up in the air, and we are out. And I don't know if you've ever watched like 48 Hours or maybe it's been you in that place where you know something bad's about to happen and time stops. You're like, no, you know, <laughs> there's this party yacht that comes in. It's got people on top of it and there's music and it's creating these huge waves. And Justin's like, and I'm like, oh, no, no, no. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So before I could say anything, we hit the wave dead on. I go flying up in the air to the point where I could have been like, hey, what's up to the people on the party yacht. <laughs> and full belly flop into the water that when I came out, all of my blisters had popped, and I looked more <laughs> like a battered wife than a beautiful bride. So if you're engaged, I'm sorry. 
And if your honeymoon was bad, I hope we made you feel better. But the point in sharing is, is that we are all dreamers. When we dream for our life, whether that be for a college degree, we dream that that, that degree will be beyond ordinary. And when we think about a career, we don't hope that 10 years down the road that our career is kind of just so-so. We don't think about family life and maybe milestones and achievements that we really hope and wish for and say, well, I kind of hope they're mediocre. All of us dream for extraordinary. But if you've lived any amount of life, you know, much like our honeymoon, life happens. And so there's this pull from the extraordinary that we know is possible that we just start to drift. And for most of us, we settle at that place of ordinary. And our hope for you today is that we will encourage you and maybe inspire you to step into the extraordinary vision that God has for you today. And so we get married, and uh, I still have a year of college left to complete. And so we're young, newlyweds, college students. And, uh, and so four months into our married life, we realized that Trisha doesn't have the flu like we thought she had. And who knew antibiotics did that with birth control? And so she's actually pregnant. And so here we are, four months into marriage, and newlyweds, newly married, and now going to be new parents. And I'm going to go and find my very first youth ministry uh, in just a few short months. And so over the next seven years, we began to adjust to life together, life as parents. But we had this belief, man, we love each other and we love God, so we should be good. Life is going to be good. Marriage is going to be okay. And so over the next seven years, we would go to a few different youth ministries and, and, and serve there, but we knew that God had planted in our hearts a vision to plant a church. And so in 2002, we sold everything that we owned, and we moved to the north side of Indianapolis to start a church. We had $5,000 to our name, which means that we didn't own a lot, all right? So, uh, but here's our business plan. By the time we run out of this money, we should have a church going. Brilliant, right? Not so much. And everybody thinks, oh, that's so faith-filled. No, that was really stupid. I don't, I don't recommend that for any church planner. But that was our vision. That was our dream. We wanted to start a church for people who didn't go to church. We wanted to create a community for people who were far from God and had given up on, on church. And so we moved on June 1st. On June 9th, we had our very first service, and 12 people showed up. And I'm thinking to myself, this is amazing. 12 disciples, 12 people here. It's biblical. It's going to work out. And over the next couple of months, God began to do some incredible things with our little church plant. A couple other churches in the area got on board. They believed in our vision. They began to give us resources and people and meeting space. And, our, and quickly, our group of 12 moved to a group of 20, and then it became a group of 50. And we had this big, audacious dream that we would help people who were far from God experience God, some for the first time and some experience Him again. And in September of 2003, we launched public services. And over 200 people showed up. And I had spent that, that year casting vision from the book of Acts and, and talking about the first church and how people sat in awe of the movement of God in the book of Acts. And it says in Acts chapter 2 that God added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. And from 2002 to Easter of 2005, we grew to over 700 people. And we had a front row seat, not just to numbers growing, but from people finding their way back to God and people being baptized and, and families being restored and people finding a home and community. And it was an amazing time. It felt like we were watching the book of Acts play out in front of us. And from an outside perspective, you would think, man, they are so successful. They have everything going in their direction and the church was going up and to the right. But even as the church was finding success, there were cracks in the foundation of my heart and cracks in the foundation of my faith that made their way into our marriage relationship. And Trish and I began to drift. 
and the white-hot passion we once had for God and the white-hot passion we once had for our marriage just simply became an ordinary relationship. And we were great ministry partners. We were just ordinary marriage partners. I don't know if you've been there where you had this vision, you had this dream, and then it comes into fruition, and it happens, but the character and the person that you thought your dream would make you become doesn't happen. And that milestone or achievement almost comes up empty, and there's a sense of frustration that I really thought once I landed my dream job, uh, once we were married, uh, maybe once we owned a house or had a baby, this would, this would make me be the person I've always wanted to be, and so that's where Justin and I were. In 2004, the church had blown up, and so we got to take a group of leaders. It wasn't the whole church anymore. It was a group of leaders on a leaders' retreat. And I remember in this room with 40 people, Justin standing up front and just casting vision, and it was electric in the room. Except I was standing in the back, or actually sitting in the back, and kind of looking at Justin. Like, I didn't even know who he was. Uh, That wasn't my husband. And in fact, not only was I frustrated towards him, I became jealous of the church, and the bride of Christ no longer was a partner, but she felt more like a mistress, that I was competing for Justin's time and energy, and I, and I was just not being seen. And, and I was angry that the people in the room were able to be there because of my sacrifice. And at that moment of just feeling jealous, I, I could feel resentment just kind of take over my heart, and I had convinced myself that I could, I could keep it at bay. But resentment will always grow like a cancer, that it doesn't just affect your marriage relationship, it affects all of your relationships. And I could feel God just saying, you need to share this with somebody, you need to confess to somebody. I'm like, yeah, because that all makes sense. Hey, I just want you to know I'm jealous of the bride of Christ. She's like a mistress to me, what you think? You know, because that's normal for a pastor's wife. There was no way. What I didn't realize is by choosing not to get help, It's not that I would drift to ordinary. I would start drifting to a really dark place. And if you were to uh, meet me at that time over that next year, I played the role well. I would come into church. I would kiss babies. I would give people hugs because that's a part of who I am. But inside, I was just dying. And I just became a darker and darker person. So fast forward, 2005, Justin and I celebrate our 10-year anniversary. So we decided to go on a cruise What I didn't realize until we got to the cruise, it was the first time that Justin and I had gotten alone. We didn't have anybody with us. We didn't have kids. We didn't have a youth ministry. We didn't have leaders. It was just Justin and I. No cell phone, no laptop. And I fell in love with him head over heels all over again. It was a great experience. A couple days later, we get back into the States, and we're sitting in a restaurant getting ready to fly home. And literally, as he sat down, his phone rang. As soon as he sat down. So he answers the call, and I just start bawling. And he's looking at me, he's like, woman, I just took you on a cruise. This should take you like 24 hours before you start crying over something. But what I knew in that moment was what we were about to go back to, the life that we were getting ready to go back to, would not cultivate a relationship like a cruise boat in the middle of the ocean. And not only did I not want to go back to be a pastor's wife, I didn't even want to go back to be a mom. I just wanted my husband's attention. And I think what I wasn't prepared for is really how far, fast, and furious we drifted in the next months to come. You know what the cruise allowed us to do is it allowed us to medicate the symptoms of the marriage problems that we had. And so we didn't really change our hearts. We just changed our behavior for a few days. 
We just made things better. We just got this temporary marriage fixed. We didn't actually deal with the marriage issues that had plagued our marriage for the previous 10 years. And so we began to realize as we stepped step back into the same patterns, the same arguments, the, the same behaviors, the same attitudes, what we began to realize is there was a gap between the marriage that we had and the marriage that we thought we would have. We had this vision for an epic, extraordinary marriage, and now there was this huge chasm between what we thought we would have and what we actually had. And maybe you're there today. Maybe there's a gap between the relationship with God that you thought you would have and the relationship with God that you actually have. And you play the part, you sing the songs, you raise your hands, you even serve in the nursery. But in your heart, you know that you're not living out the faith that you thought you would. Maybe it's a relationship and you thought, man, this dating relationship will complete me. This dating relationship will, will allow me to become the person that I've always wanted to be. But now there's a gap between the relationship with that person you thought you would have and the relationship that you actually have. Maybe it's your marriage relationship this morning. And you, you like Trish and I, you dreamed of an epic marriage relationship and now you're just more like roommates. You just occupy the same space at night. You're just not really any... You're not really sharing life with one another. What do you do with that gap? What do you do with that gap that, that between what you thought was going to be and what the reality of that you actually live in? How, how do you reconcile that? I think for many of us, we, we equate longer married with better marriage. We think that, man, if I'm married longer, I'm going to have a better relationship with my spouse. That's why we see you know, older couples in the park feeding the ducks and they, you know, they're in their 70s and they're throwing bread down there and we think, oh, that is so cute. Right? They may not even have slept in the same bedroom for the last 20 years. They may not even talk to each other. But we equate longer married with better marriage. And that wasn't how our marriage was playing out. Longer married for us meant more irritable. Longer for us meant louder fights. Longer for us meant shorter tempers. Longer for us, longer married for us meant less patience. Longer married for us meant longer grudges. And this all culminated on October the 9th, 2005, when I came home from church. We had just launched a brand new series on the importance of godly relationships. Trish had led worship that morning, so she was laying down for an afternoon nap. And I sat down on the edge of the bed and I said, hey, we need to have a conversation. She said, okay. And I said, I'm done. She said, you're done with what? I said, I'm done with you. God, I don't want to be married anymore. I'm not in love with you. I don't want to be with you. I don't want to be in ministry. I don't even know if I want a relationship with God anymore. I'm having an affair. It's with your best friend, and I want to be with her. And I wish, even standing here today, almost eight years later, that I could say it was a confession of remorse. But it wasn't. It wasn't a confession of remorse. It wasn't a confession of repentance. It was a confession of resignation. I was simply done. What had started out 10 years before as Trish and I fighting for one another moved quickly into Trish and I fighting with each other and now I was just done fighting. And maybe you've been in there in your life where you have given and you have given and you have given and you've given and nobody reciprocates. Your kids don't reciprocate. Your husband doesn't reciprocate. Your boss doesn't give back to you like you give to the company. And you just get to this place where you're ready to give up. You're ready to resign. You're ready to cash in. And that's exactly what I did. Trish got up and left the house, and um, a few hours later she called me and asked me that I asked that I leave, and so I went and stayed in a hotel for the next couple of nights. 
And over the next couple of days, God began to break my heart and began to allow me to see some of the destruction that I was causing, not just the church that I had cheated on, not just the three boys that I had cheated on, not just my wife that I had cheated on, but on his heart, the destruction I had caused to my relationship with him. And I got to a place where I was willing to go to counseling, and so a couple of days after the confession, I started going to counseling, and I went to counseling by myself for the next 10 days. And Trish and I didn't talk to one another. Um, we didn't speak for the next 10 days. We had a mediator that helped us get our boys back and forth between the place I was staying and, the pla- and, and our house. And we were separated for two and a half months total. And I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you've been desperate for grace, You've been desperate for God. And despite the failure that I had become as a husband and as a father and as a pastor, despite the mistakes that I had made, despite the hurt that I caused, as I began to go to counseling and began to seek God again, I felt God's grace in a way that I had never felt it before. And I was desperate for it. And I didn't know if our marriage could ever be reconciled, but I felt like God met me in those ten days of silence from Trish. And I felt like his grace was real for the first time in my life. And I think as Justin felt like he was drawing closer to God, I felt like I was running in the opposite direction. And I, I don't know if you've ever been in that place where someone else's choices brings about chaos in your life. And I was frustrated because I felt like I was obedient. I felt like I had trusted this God that I said I had followed my whole entire life was faithful and true. But with those words, I'm leaving you, I lost everything. I lost my best friend. I was losing my husband. I lost my church family. And I think the hardest thing for me to wrap my mind around at the time is that I lost the only identity I had ever known. And the person that I thought God was calling me to be, the extraordinary vision I felt like he had given me just ended up in a disaster. And so I did the only thing that I knew to do even as frustrated as I was with God, and I just opened up his word, desperate for him to give me something. And I started to read this passage that's found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. And it says, For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best that they knew how. But God's discipline is always right and good for us because it means we will share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterwards, there will be a quiet harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and stand firm on your shaky legs. Mark out a straight path for your feet. Then those who follow you, though they are weak and lame, will not stumble and fall, but will become strong. And I was desperate for God's holiness. I had no idea what it had meant, but I knew at that moment, it was the same moment as 2004 when I had a decision to make if I would choose health or destruction. And now I didn't have a choice. My life had blown up and I couldn't hide anymore. And God was saying to lean into his discipline, I needed to let go and stop controlling, stop manipulating in hopes that that would never be my story and it became my story anyway. But what I was grateful for was God was saying, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But if I could paint a picture for you of being on a couch, losing everything and looking at my small boys, having no idea what comes next, to read the words, then those who follow you, though they are weak and lame, will not stumble and fall, but will become strong. I was desperate for it.
And I remember the phone being handed to me, and it was um, a counselor from Focus on the Family, and I just wept and begged him to give me, you know, five happy hops to heal my marriage. And I told him about the conversation that I had just had with Justin on the phone, and I asked Justin, I said, do you love me? And he said, yes. And I said, but are you in love with me? And he said, no. I said to the counselor, tell me how to get him back home. And his response was, if you love him, you'll let him go. And to be honest with you, I was like, um, listen. <laughs> let me talk to your supervisor because you're getting fired. <laughs> Worst advice ever. <laughs> the words that he would say next were deafening. I said to him, if I let him go, he's going to choose her. And his response simply was, he already has. Sometimes stepping into the discipline of God will be counterintuitive to what you know. But when we learn to completely surrender and trust, it was the first time in my life that I was truly surrendering all of myself to him. And in that process, it meant making hard choices. And so I went upstairs and I packed up everything that Justin owned. And it was like he was dead, but it was worse than death because he was alive and well. He just didn't want to be with me. But I knew in that moment that today marked the day that I would choose to surrender and believe that even losing everything, that God does make things new. And in that newness, there has to be an extraordinary life waiting on the other side. You know, if we're honest today, the affair gets a lot of attention. It's the bomb that we drop at the different places that we go and speak. It's probably why we're asked to speak as much as we are. Well, we began to realize that the affair was simply a symptom of much deeper issues in our marriage that went unaddressed. And we realized that we had an ordinary marriage long before the affair. One of the things that we began to understand as we started writing the book, Beyond Ordinary, is that an ordinary marriage is simply an overflow of an ordinary relationship with God. And we were desperate to figure out how to have the extraordinary life that God promises us. See, this, this isn't a book about how to redeem your life after an affair. It's really a, a book about how to redeem your life, period. Because Jesus says in John, John 10, 10, I have come to give you life and life to its fullest. And most Christians I know aren't living that life. They're not living a life to its fullest. They struggle with the same stuff that people who are far from God struggle with. So how are we going to, to hit rock bottom and recover not just the life that we used to have, but a life that God promised? Because I don't want the life I used to have. I don't want the marriage that I used to have. And so that's why we're here today with a few moments that we have left is just to leave you with two practical things that if you're sitting in ordinary, extraordinary is waiting for you, but you have to choose it. And the first is this. We move past ordinary. Ordinary is defeated as we tell the truth. Ordinary is defeated as we tell the truth. Ten days after uh, we separated, Trisha called me on my cell phone, and I tell people all the time, if the prodigal son's dad would have had a cell phone, this would have been a call that he would have made. And she simply said, hey, I hear you've been going to counseling. And I said, yes. And she said, I'm willing to go with you. And so we started going to counseling a few days later, and we went every day. That's how jacked up we were. We went every day. For the next month, we, went, we actually went every day for six months, but for the next 30 days, we were in counseling four days a week. We get done with the session. I look at the counselor and go, okay, what do you got tomorrow? What's the, what's the opening? And we went back. So 30 days into our restoration process, our counselor says, hey, trust is starting to be rebuilt. You're at a very critical time in your recovery. Trish is actually starting to believe some of the things that you're saying. So if you've left anything out about that relationship, you need to confess it. And I knew in my heart I'd withheld truth. 
And so I gave a few more details about that relationship, and Trish just flipped out. She got up and left. We thought she went to the bathroom. She actually left the building. It's very awkward sitting there looking at the counselor going, where did Trish go? She wasn't there. A few hours later, I get a call from a lady in our church, and she said, Trish is filing for divorce because you're incapable of telling the truth. And something about that phrase, incapable of telling the truth, flipped a switch in my heart. And I began to realize that for the first 30 days of this process, I had focused on how I fix our marriage. Just give me the hoops to jump through. Just give me the steps to take to make it up to you. I never really considered how do I heal my relationship with God. And being fixed and being healed are two different things. And oftentimes in church, we want to be fixed, but God wants us to be healed. And I began to ask God, God, even if I'm not married, I want to be a person of truth. Even if Trisha decides to divorce me, I want to be different. A few days later, I um, came to the house to pick up the boys for school, and Trisha invited me in, and she said, I have to know everything. And I said, okay. I said, I've told you everything as it pertains to that relationship, but I have, a, I have more that I need to confess to you. I said, I was sexually abused when I was a kid, and I've not told anyone about it. I've never gotten any help for it. And I know there's a broken part of me. And I know telling you doesn't heal it, but I know healing starts by just confessing it. And I said, I, I've had a 10-year pornography addiction that I've hid from you and I've hid from everybody. And I've preached against it and I've counseled people through it. But I want freedom from it. And I understand if you don't want to be married to me, I understand if you think I'm disgusting, I understand if you never want to see me again, you can have everything. But even if we're not together, I want to be different. And she simply said, now we can start over. Now we can begin again. Because I finally know the real you. And I think sometimes when we get married, we think to ourselves, man, I want to share the rest of my life with this person. And yet over the course of time, we withhold parts of our heart from the person that we want to share our life with. See, the word intimacy means to be fully known. And that's God's plan for you in your relationship with him. That's God's plan for your marriage. And 80% of the truth will never lead to 100% intimacy. And, and so my question to you today is, do you have parts of your heart that you're trying to hide from God? Do you have parts of your heart that you're trying to hide from your spouse? Because withholding truth will land you in ordinary every single time. I, I've experienced it. And, and so the question is, are you willing to be a person of truth? Are you willing to pay the price? Because here's the deal. The truth will set you free, but it will make you miserable first. Okay, that's just the reality about it. But you can trade in short-term misery for long-term freedom or you can, you can have long-term hiddenness and numb the pain of, of, of your marriage, numb the pain of your um, relationship with God and never really live the life that God has called you to live, that God has created you to live. See, when we withhold truth from our spouse, when we withhold truth from God, we place a lid on the intimacy that we were created to experience. And the life that you desire, the marriage that you desire, is on the other side of truth. The last principle that we want to quickly leave with you with is ordinary is defeated when we choose to forgive. And I, I had realized that I had a forgiveness issue long before the affair. And you know you struggle with forgiveness when it doesn't matter what the argument starts out. It just comes back to the same wound. And so you do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, which is the definition of what? Insanity. Insanity. And that was our marriage relationship. We just lived insane, really high highs, really low lows. And, and I knew 
how to be a bitter person. I didn't know how to be a forgiving person. And so as I stepped into that process, what God was teaching me is that God has given us the gift of grief. When we start grieving our situation, what we're saying is that this is the reality, that we're not faking it anymore, we're not pretending it away. This is my reality. It's when we we stop coming to church on Sunday morning and walking in the doors and we see Pastor Tim and he says, how are you doing? And maybe you just got into a fight with your with your spouse, maybe you got into a fight with your kids, and as he asks you, you know, how you're doing, you respond, oh, we're doing great, and then you look down at your kids, and you're like, tell them you're great. <laughs> right? We've never done that. Never. <laughs> but we think we're sparing the people who are asking that question from burdening them. But what we're saying, how different would life be if you were to simply say, I'm not okay? I'm not okay, and with that, you start to become a person of truth, of saying, life is not okay, and I'm grieving it. It's my reality. And oftentimes what follows is this, this anger that we don't know what to do with, and what I had chosen over and over and over again in my insanity was just to be bitter. What God was saying is, I just want you to be broken, fully surrendered, stepping into the discipline and trusting that I have your back. And so I did that. I became broken and I surrendered and I like wanted a button that said I'm, I'm a forgiveness person. I'm awesome. Like <laughs> I had gotten it, you know. And a year later into that process, I felt like God was calling me not only to extend forgiveness to Justin but to my best friend. So I wrote her a letter and I told her that I loved her. I told her that God helped me to see beyond this myopic view of this broken person who wrecked my life but rather a panoramic view that we're all broken. So I wrote it, and maybe, maybe you've been in that process where you felt like you understood forgiveness and you stepped into it believing God had your back. But a week went by, a month went by, years went by, and I never heard back from her. And it almost hurt worse than the affair. It's like I gave you a chance. And not only was I upset with her, I was furious with God. Like, God, you asked me to step into this process again just to drop me. And I don't get it. So I opened up my Bible to the only passage, even after being in ministry as long as I have, that I knew talked about forgiveness. And it's that famous passage found in Matthew chapter 18 where Peter, his disciple, asked him, well, Jesus, how many times should I forgive? And he says, 70 times 7. I'm like, God, I'm not good at math. I don't understand it. (laughs) But he said, continue to read on, and I did. And so Jesus talks about this story about a king and his servant that the king was owed millions of dollars from his servant and the servant begged on his behalf and, and the king forgave him. I'm like, I get it. I'm the king. He's like, read on, child. And so I continue to read on. And the servant who had just been forgiven millions of dollars goes back to his servant who only owes him a few thousand dollars and refuses to forgive the debt. And I, it just made me angry. And it felt like if you could picture looking up at the cross and saying, but God, you have no idea what it's like to be betrayed by a best friend. You have no idea what it's like to be given a vision, to step into it and just be betrayed and feel like it blows up. You have no idea what it means to lose everything when you've done nothing wrong. And I just felt like he had quietly responded to my heart and he said, I do. I I do know what it means to be betrayed. I do know what it means to lose my life when I did nothing wrong. And I chose to die on the cross. I chose to never forgive or never give up on you. Choosing to forgive you through death, regardless if you choose me. 
And that's when I realized that forgiveness, true forgiveness, is when we offer it regardless of the person's response. And maybe you're thinking, but if I do that, they win. Then that person that wounded me, they win. They get off. It's a, you know, get out of free jail card. And what I want you to hear is that they don't win. Christ wins. He wins a piece of your heart. He woos you back. And he says, I've never given up on you. I was the same yesterday, today, and I will be tomorrow. And I know that there are some of you in this room that you are the wounder. You're the adulterer. You have wrecked somebody's life. And I want you to hear this morning that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And maybe this morning the person that you need to forgive is yourself. Forgiveness is free. Trust is earned. They are two very different things. But in order for you to begin the process of living beyond ordinary, you have to choose. Your spouse can't choose it for you. Your children, your pastors... You have to choose. And so that's the question we leave you with. Will you choose today to become a person of truth? Will you choose today to believe that God, that Jesus died on a cross for your sins to say, I've never given up on you, child. I've never given up on you. That all he asks is you come to him surrendered wholly in his discipline, that you would surrender to him and believe that it starts, your healing path starts when you offer the forgiveness, the same forgiveness that was offered to you on the cross. But you have to choose. And will you choose it today? Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that uh, you don't give up on us, that you relentlessly pursue us and invite us into a relationship with you no matter how far away we we feel. God, I just pray for the man or the woman that's here today and they're just not a truth teller. They're they're living in hiddenness. They're living in bondage to their past. They are living in fear that if somebody finds out about that, then it'll be over. God, would you give them the courage to, to share truth? to pay the the cost up front to have the life that you've created them to live on the backside of truth. God, for the the person that feels like they failed and so they're a failure, their first marriage failed so they must be a failure, their business failed so they must be a failure, God, would you just remind them that just because you fail, you're not a failure, that redemption is available for everyone and redemption isn't dependent on our marital status. You don't look at us and label us like the world does. You look at us and you give us a title of son or daughter. Not failure or success. God, for the person that's carrying baggage today, baggage from their past, wounds from the past, things that they haven't forgiven, things that they won't let go of, would you give them the courage to forgive, to be vulnerable again? Because forgiveness doesn't excuse that person's behavior. It just prevents that behavior from destroying our heart. So God, we thank you. Give us courage not to give up on the relationships in our life and to not give up on you. In Jesus' name, amen.